top of the page. Up next on Book TV's Afterwards, New York Times contributing opinion writer Lindy West discusses the Me Too movement. She's interviewed by author and New York Magazine writer Rebecca Traster. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. All Afterwards programs are also available as podcasts. Hi, Lindy. It's so nice to be here with you. Hi, it's so nice to see you. Talking <laughs> about your new book, The Witches Are Coming. Um, I actually want to start by asking you about humor. Because your writing, uh, in this book, and always, is very funny. You're, I mean, would you call yourself a humor writer? I guess so, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. That's so nice. <laughs> Thank you. I'm more comfortable with that than comedian. People love to call me a comedian, which I don't really feel like is... Um, accurate because I don't do stand-up comedy really I mean I have but I was gonna I, say have you ever done stand-up? Yeah, a long time ago and it's very hard and I didn't like it right. <laughs> and I wasn't good at it um, but I uh, I'm, 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 a, I'm a comedy writer I mean I have a comedy TV show and I'm a humor writer and I, I certainly um, do nothing but try to be funny all the time <laughs> you know that's my main mission so I guess I want to ask you as a writer as a, a feminist writer a political writer um, a cultural critic how is humor a useful entry point for the things you want to say? Yeah, um, I mean, I, it's always been really useful to me, I've found. Um, and maybe that's just, you know, um, very convenient for me to say because I, that's what I like to write. But it, it feels like um, a great way to sell challenging concepts to people or even kind of um, con people <laughs> into into consuming challenging ideas. Um because if you, uh, you know, even just back when I was a film critic, um, I, I always tried to make everything funny or like mm -hmm. make each piece of writing a piece of entertainment in itself. Um, because it's, it's, if you can make something funny, you can get people to swallow stuff that they might not otherwise think that they were interested in, like fe big feminist ideas or radical political concepts or or things that are really challenging to talk about, like abortion. You know, we put an abortion in my comedy TV show. Um, and I, I always say, I always think of it as like, you know, hiding a, if you need to give your dog a pill, you like hide it in some liverwurst or whatever, right. you know? Um, <laughs> right. Because humor is palatable. People want it. People crave it. And it's also, if you're writing about politics, which is like... A horrible thing to have to do. <laughs> it's like to, yes, it's very it grueling yes, to even have to think about it. Um, humor is just such a great coping mechanism, and it's so helpful just as a human being to be able to, um, you know, share in that like cathartic kind of gallows humor about um, how bad uh, everything on earth is right now. <laughs> <laughs> I also. I'm really interested, and in part, this is because I've written a lot about women in anger, and one of the later essays in your book is about fury. And so I'm really interested in the connection between mirth and rage. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and how, does, does being funny help you be angry? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's such a, um, like a, a fruitful vehicle for humor. You know, when you're really mad about something and you're ranting and raving about it, like that's so it, it's it, at least for me, it's really easy to to be funny in that context. You know, like it's like again when I used to write movie reviews, 
um, it's easy to the point of laziness to hate a movie because it's so fun and funny. Like, it's so easy to write something funny about something that you hate and to just, like, trash something and be like, this this was a nightmare. Um, this, you know, this movie um, is trash. Like, that is... Um, it's, it's much harder to, to be funny and um, thoughtful and positive about something or to give a nuanced take on something. Um, and then in a, in a more constructive way... Yeah, I think that, um, I think, again, that, you know, I don't mean to say that it's just lazy to be angry, I, but, because it's not. Obviously, there's justified anger everywhere right now. Um, but, yeah, I think that uh, he, he, laughing and um, being funny and making jokes in a really scary, infuriating time is is like medicine. It's just so helpful to just get through day to day and not and not just burn up. And I also think um, that both humor and fury are like active feelings, you know, um, as opposed to despair and depression. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like so helpful just to to stay awake and stay alive. I also i I think about the liverwurst and the pill. And the way that, especially anybody who's on the margins, um, i.e. not a straight, white, male perspective, um, if their fury can, it feels threatening and monstrous, but if you wrap it in jokes. Yeah. Which is also not fair, you know? Right. <laughs> it's also absolutely not fair. Um, and the fact that, you know, I mean, I don't want to get into it too immediately, but like, you know, the fact that, like, Brett Kavanaugh can sit there and, like, wail and scream and cry and be outraged and people find it somehow dignified. Um, but we, but marginalized people have to, like, do a whole song and dance to, like, please, please beg you to take our pain seriously. Our legitimate, actual, real pain and, right. and real oppression and real marginalization. Like, that's not fair. Um, and and I, so, I mean, I, a thing that I also do in my writing deliberately is yeah I try to make it really funny sometimes and then I balance that by going real hard with, into sincerity because I think there is a political statement in that too in like just actually saying I'm allowed to have these feelings these feelings are valid and I'm going to put them out here without trying to make them palatable to you um, and you know and I think but I do think having the balance of both I mean no one wants to read 300 pages of like you know, a very, like, serious, sad woman scolding you. Um, so the balance is important, but um, not every page in this book is funny, and sometimes I go long stretches of time, like, being really vulnerable and really um, really direct and, and sincere in a way that I think, like, flirts with corny. But I like, I like doing that. I think um, people are afraid of sincerity in a way that's not always healthy. And... I think it's okay to be corny sometimes. Like, life is really big and and wet and messy and squishy and, like, scary, and it's okay to feel those things. One of the places where you, I mean, right from the beginning of the book, um, you combine the sort of the very funny, inviting approach, and you, you tell a story that I'm going to ask you to tell here about a man you call, refer to as Larry Berry, um, to get into a very serious essay about the way about the reversals of oppression and victimhood, can you tell the Larry Berry story? <laughs> yes, 
happily. Um, so, so my husband was on a trip in Chicago um, for work, and he went out to a bar, like a bar that someone had recommended, and it was like a, like a, um, a bar owned by like queer people of color, and there was a, a dance night that night, and someone had told him this is a great bar, you should go hang out there, and um, so he's sitting at the bar, and a, a sort of middle-aged white man came in, sat down, and struck up a conversation. And basically said, um, you know, oh, um, that looks so much, looks like so much fun out there on the dance floor. I wish I was dancing. And my husband was like, well, why don't you go dance? And he was like, well, I'm not allowed to dance. And my husband was like, why? And he was, and then the guy was like, well, I came here last week to the queer people of color dance night as a 45-year-old white man. And I went out on the dance floor and I started dancing with this woman and then she said, I don't want to dance with you. And then all of her friends got weird about it. So I guess I'm not allowed to dance. (laughs) Which is like just such a like agonizingly could like it's a it's such a contortion of reality, you know, to um, go into a space that is explicitly not for you and, um, it, you know, try to violate people's boundaries, overstep people's boundaries, and then be victimized by their response. It's not that he's not allowed to dance. He's just not allowed to dance with whoever he wants, whenever he wants, touch whoever he wants, m- you know, make himself the center of this moment. Go ahead and dance by yourself and don't touch anyone. Have a good time. But that's not what he wanted you know he wanted interaction with these people um he wanted to he wanted to do whatever he wanted and being told that he wasn't allowed to felt like victimization to him which is i think very telling well and it gets to the broader i mean to the degree there are a couple of overarching themes throughout this book of essays and one of them is this sense that um challenge or critique of the those in power uh, reads as itself a, a witch hunt, which is the metaphor that you return to very often, um, and victimization of the powerful. So that those who, you know, powerful people um, who've been critiqued for sexual harassment feel that and have perhaps lost their jobs or been censured briefly or, as you write, forced to stay in their mansions for a few months before going on sold-out comedy tours... Um, that in fact the language that they use about themselves and that people use in their defense is the language of, of victimization, that they've been killed, that their lives have been ended, their careers ended. I mean... And by the way, language that actual victims have been denied the use of. You know what I mean? Like, how much do we get to hear about... Like, when do we actually hear about all the women who quit various fields because they were sexually harassed at work those all of those people are invisible and they're not out i mean we're starting to talk about it a little bit but think of how many people that actually is the questions of what happened to their careers right in light of harassment or whether or not they themselves are harassed or were working in an environment where harassment and discrimination meant that they didn't have those avenues nobody talks about their ended or quashed careers or ambitions but it's an emergency a national emergency that we that we figure out how these men can be redeemed and get everything back that they've ever wanted and the great moral quandary it's always posed the thing that frustrates me is that it's posed to us as 
um, can we forgive? Can we permit people to evolve? Which yes. is something I want to get to. Mm -hmm. But the, this is always posed with regard to powerful people who've abused their power when they need to or want to get another job or another position of power. And then it's framed as our sort of collective ability for forgiveness, redemption, or understanding that evolution is possible. Yeah, and I've been saying this lately. I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, and because people are always asking me, I'm sure they're asking you constantly, like, what's the path? Like, what's the path to redemption? What do we do? We have to have something. And I, I, I so I've been trying to come up with an answer because people keep asking me. And I realized that the answer is, how about if, I don't know, not my responsibility to figure it out. How about you workshop it, you troubleshoot, keep trying stuff until people forgive you. I don't know. How about you figure it out? Like, okay, you issued a half-hearted public apology, and it, it didn't work, people didn't forgive you, then they didn't forgive you. Try something else. Right. Wait longer. Uh, figure out active ways to atone and make amends. I don't know what the answer is. There is no map. You try stuff until something works. And, and also, it's not, why is the question always about you and your path? That's my, I mean, I don't know, live your life, but my, my interest has never been in the repercussion for those who've abused their power. Really, I'm not particularly interested, honestly, I'm not a, I, in whether they go to jail or lose it. Like, I prefer that they not continue to like profit from their abuse, right? Mm -hmm. So I guess in many cases I prefer that. But I'm just interested in what happens to the other people. Totally. Well, it's also like such an entitled uh, position to take. Like, can you imagine if you being like, I don't know, a 17-year-old girl and suddenly like going on the news and being like, where's my career? Hey, <laughs> you know, or like, Can you hey. imagine being a 58-year-old woman and going on the news and saying, right. hey. And being like, well, what's my path to being a millionaire again? This isn't fair. I mean, or like being a million, like the idea that you're entitled to the exact career that you want, no matter how you behave, is frankly alien like it's completely bizarre i don't get you know i have to I, I work in like eight different totally uncertain fields where the entire uh you know the entire industry could end tomorrow right um and i and i'm really lucky to have all these jobs have all these opportunities um but i have to wake up every day and be like um you know okay should i should i sign a mortgage should i you know like because Maybe next year, uh, newspapers, blogs, and television are all dead. Cease to exist. Yes. <laughs> and I don't feel any <laughs> impulse to go out and be like, someone else needs to figure out what I'm going to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I haven't even abused my power, right. as far as I know. <laughs> like, it's, it's so I guess you're never gonna you're never gonna let me have right? millions of dollars. I guess I'm just barred forever I guess from I being just... a billionaire. <laughs> I guess I just never get to have a yacht, <laughs> thanks to you. Like, why do you get to have a yacht? I don't get to have a yacht. Um, I, I want to talk about this question of abuse of power and the degree to which we are, in fact, complicit in it, and the question of evolution for people who are aiming for evolution and self-reflection. You have a very funny line, and, but it really made me think. You have a funny line in one of the essays about trying to stay on the right side of history, where you say that there's a vegan lady who yells at you on Instagram about how drinking milk is rape, and that 
you can't stand that lady, but every once in a while you wonder, in a hundred years, will it turn out that she's right? Because of how, what it means to live in a world where we're actually trying to raise our standards for behavior equality and justice, and that often those of us who have lived in the world and participated and benefited from our own power and degrees of privilege, we've been on the wrong side of that. And can, can you talk about that process for you and what it's like? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, the answer is I have no idea about anything. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I don't. We're, it's all. I mean, this is why it's why it's so infuriating when people demand a roadmap because I, we're all figuring this out as we go and just doing our best. You know, that's all you can really do. Um, fully happy to admit that the vegan lady is probably probably is right. I don't know. I mean, she sucks. I don't like her, but. Um, uh, you know, uh, I just, there, there's, you know, stuff I wrote 10 years ago that's mortifying to me oh, now, you know, yes. I mean, and that absolutely doesn't hold up. And I do think, and I'm, I, I think I'm not just saying this in a self-serving way, although who knows, um, it, it's not necessarily productive to, you know, sp- spend all of our time, like, self-flagellating about um, previously having been behind, Right. You know, like if you go, my husband recently like tried to watch the 40 year old virgin with our uh, 18 year old daughter. And she was like, what is this? Because it's like full of homophobia. Like every joke is like a gay joke. And she was like, why are we watching this? And, you know, I don't even rem- I don't remember it that way at all. And I'm sure at the time it it was a it was a product of its time. And that. I don't want to say that was normal because, like, obviously we knew uh, we knew about homophobia in 2006 or whenever that movie happened. But, like, that's not that long ago. And, like, that's how much things have shifted. And um, do I think that, like, everyone who laughed at that movie then or even now is, like, an evil monster? No, of course not. We're all growing and learning things. And I think all you can really do is be be open to the world and be permeable and god i mean especially for white people please don't go through life assuming that you know everything you know like it's so it's so when you've been told when you've been indoctrinated into this idea that you're like the default human being especially obviously white men but white women too too. um it's i think very easy to fall into a trap of of assuming that your instincts are correct you know and that like well this feels okay to me, so it's okay. You absolutely can never do that, you know, and you have to be a person who is curious and who is listening and who is, um, you know, seeking out new perspectives and not demanding that other people bring them to you on a platter, you know. Um, there's just work to be done all the time. And, okay, and by the way, if someone wants to go dig up something horrendous that I wrote in 2009, um, I-, I would... Be thrilled to engage with that and apologize and talk about my own behavior and my my own growth and atone in whatever way. You know, again, go through that troubleshooting process of hoping that people will will take me back, you know. Um, and I think that it's a fiction that, like, that's not possible. I think people are hungry for apologies and, and accountability. And I think it's a gift when someone gives you the opportunity to be better. Right. This seems to get at one of the things that you write about in the book in several places that I found that 
I, I just think is so true and so right about America's propensity to lie to itself. And um, there's an essay, one of my favorite essays in the book, begins with celebrity internet cats um, and ends with the rise of the alt-right. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually going to read, I fear that it's going to be like that Saturday Night Live skit where it's like, that was awesome. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to read a paragraph that you wrote, um, I think it's in that essay, um, that I really loved. Um, it's, uh, <clears throat> you write, white Americans hunger for plausible deniability and swaddle themselves in it and always have for the sublime relief of deferred responsibility, the soft violence of willful ignorance, the barbaric fiction of rugged individualism. The worst amongst us have deployed it to seduce and herd the vast complacent center. It's okay. You didn't do anything wrong. You earned everything you have. Benefiting from genocide is fine if it was a long time ago. The scientists will figure out climate change. The cat's name is Tartar Sauce, which goes to the specifics of your internet cat essay. Um, this is part of what you're talking about here, is resting ourselves out of a, a comfort that's offered to us as white women. Mm -hmm. Even more comfort or different kinds of comfort offered to white men mm -hmm. in this country. Is it, our is it our responsibility to be permanently uncomfortable? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how, you know, obviously that's not something that you can make compulsory and actually enforce, but I think um, a lot of people, um, you know, somewhere inside, like, want to be good and want to be on the right side of history or whatever you want to call it. And I think, um, you know, it's easy to be seduced into this kind of comfort that is, that is offered to us, that is a, a massive privilege and that, you know, um, is, is really, really tremendously destructive. And I, I just think that, um, yeah, absolutely. It's a responsibility. Of course it is. Of course it's a responsibility. And, it's a responsibility that most people, myself included most of the time, I'm sure, you know, um, are not fulfilling because, because, you know, for a million reasons, among them that like everyday life is really hard and complicated and we're all stressed and we have kids and we have jobs and, and we are like trapped in a capitalist hamster wheel or whatever. Um, but it's still a responsibility, you know, it's still um, part of the work of being a person especially if you want to think of yourself as a person who cares about justice and equality and the future of the planet. And, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know the tidy way to, to achieve that or because it is hard. It, it's hard to be uncomfortable and people are not drawn to discomfort naturally. Um, but it's also, um, I don't know. I say that, but then also there's nothing that's been more rewarding in my life than, than g constantly going through this process and thinking about ways to hold myself accountable and ways that I have benefited from, um, you know, the absolute horrors of history, you know? Um, it is so much better to be in that place than in a place of denial and um, entitlement. You know, I, I, that's a... Once you, real, once you recognize it and realize that that's where you are, I mean, that's a mortifying, devastating feeling. I don't know. I mean... I was so interested in part in the tensions in the book between... I mean, not... 
I actually don't think they're internal, but that you're exposing them, the tensions between your call to discomfort and, and a discomforting honesty and opposition to the kinds of lies that America likes to tell about itself, mm -hmm. that we fixed our problems, that we were bad once, but we, we, yeah. we've made it better. Um, it, the tension between that call, which seems to have risen, and I think it's a call that, um, it's a call to white women, right? Mm -hmm. To white people, you're making the call to white people in general. Mm -hmm. And then also specifically to a lot of white women, at the same time that amongst white women has, has risen um, a sort of desire for extra kinds of comforts, which you tackle in your hilarious essay about doing Gwyneth Paltrow's goop stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's such a, like the contrast there is so stark between like, look, our job and our responsibility here is to get real uncomfortable with ourselves, um, with our history, with our complicity, and then this is happening it really in many of this, to many of the same people Mm -hmm. as are also like very invested in wellness and crystals and mm -hmm. skin cream and stuff. Right. It's interesting because, and I hadn't thought about this, I'm just articulating this for the first time, so who knows how it'll come out. But um, <laughs> I'm sure that almost no one at that Goop conference voted for Trump. Right, right. But the impulse, you know, the, imp the, the sort of, what I imagine to be the, the impulse behind being a white woman who voted for Trump is similar to being a white woman at that conference and talking and talking and talking about wellness without actually talking about the systemic problems that make most of the people in the country unwell. You know what I mean? Right. Like, to be a white woman who voted for Trump and to say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm independent. I'm actually freer than, than the professional victims on the left and these people who are mired in their own victimhood. And I, I'm voting with my brain and whatever. Um, I'm actually m more feminist than liberal women or whatever. To say that, it, you know, is, is really to just throw your lot in with, with whiteness and expect white men to protect you. Um, but you're, you're, you are literally... Um, you know, you're voting for family separation at the border and you're voting for, um, you know, uh, the stripping of abortion rights and you're, you're voting uh, to destroy the lives uh, of, of millions and millions and millions of women and to pretend like somehow that can be a feminist vote uh, is, is just ludicrous. I mean, it's, it's a fantasy. And similarly, to go to this wellness conference and be like, I'm invested in wellness and I care about, about people being well and women, women specifically, you know, women, oh, women need to take care of themselves. And to then sit there all day long and talk about, um, you know, gluten and leech therapy when, you know, if you really want to talk about women's wellness, you should be talking about um, you know, drinking water in Flint, exactly, Michigan. exactly. Yeah. Like there's this, there's a really similar, I think kind of parallel, like, um, refusal to, to engage with reality, you know, and that's not to say that, you know, okay, if you're a white woman with money and you want to buy a thousand dollar skin cream and put it on your face and you also are a politically engaged person who does think critically about the systems in which we live, of course, like, fine. Right, right. But, you know, it, and, and obviously I don't expect every event to be a, a political rally and a teach-in or whatever, but 
there was just something so um, disturbing. I can't remember what year I went. I can't remember if Trump was president yet or not. But regardless, I mean, these these problems predated Trump, obviously. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just think that it, it, it's, it just feels like a, not everything has to be a political rally. Right. But how hard would it have been to spend a little more time making sure that that this event had any level of diversity? Right. Um, or even have one panel that addressed politics in any way. I mean, there was a panel about having it all as a mom, and it was, and no one talked about how they're all millionaires with, you know, clearly eight nannies. Right. And did, they did not talk, presumably, about subsidized daycare or no. extended family leave policies or higher minimum wages. Because none of that's relevant to them. Right. And I guess this is. <laughs> sort of where I where I'm aiming is like if you only care about things that are personally relevant to you um without taking it too far I, 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 that's bad <laughs> like if you're a white woman who only cares about white women's problems that's not feminism that's white supremacy right i guess i did i just you went did i went you all did the it. way you went but there. <laughs> seriously and i think that's something that people need to think about um, you know, that's that's the any social justice issue. If you don't take it all the way to the finish line, that that's an oppressive, that's a hate movement. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you heard it here first. If you're, I mean, if you're only fighting right. for justice for yourself, right? So you're not doing it. Right. I'm sorry. Right. Well, and the form that, I mean, this gets to another thing that you write about extensively in the book in terms of the representation of bodies and the whole notion of what wellness means being tied to a very specific, and I would say very clearly racialized, view of what well looks like, mm -hmm. which yeah. is uh, which is thin and white. And largely unattainable by almost every person on earth, which makes it an incredible thing to monetize. Right. Because every single person, 99% of people, will just fruitlessly chase that forever. Right. And conveniently, there are a million products that cost anywhere from $9.99 to <laughs> sky's the limit that you can buy and buy and buy. And, oh, this didn't work. Maybe you need this. Oh, here's a special formula. Maybe this will work for you. And, I mean, it's like... You know, maybe you think I sound like a conspiracy theorist, but it's all right there in front of us. I think, I think it sounds not... like capitalism is what I yeah. think it sounds like. <laughs> I know you don't. I meant like a proverbial you. I know you get me. <laughs> the you out there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, obviously people are exploiting you for money. Right. Us, all of us. And I say that like wearing makeup and, you know, whatever. And I'm sure this dress is unethical. <sighs> It's all a, I don't know, it's a process. Well, so this is, so the, the book is, I, I feel like I led you down a path where you accidentally, or where we inadvertently got to calling Goop a hate group. And I know, and I don't mean, I had a, I had a good time. Everyone was really nice. But I, I want to diffuse that slightly by pointing out that one of the things that's interesting in this book, where you are calling for discomfort and, and self-examination, is that you're also, um... You're also pretty generous uh, about a lot of the problematic stuff, right? So you write in that goop chapter, like, look, I get it. Why why we like, lots of us like face cream and crystals. And lots of us fear dying and want to do things that we're told are going to make us well and, and healthier. 
And, um, and, and you apply some of that generosity to culture, too. There's a chapter, there's a chapter, an essay, I'm not supposed to talk in chapters, essay um, about Adam Sandler movies. Yeah, and I, I, try, I, do, I do try to be really generous because I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's fair to constantly berate our past selves. And it's also not realistic to expect perfection from every single person in the world, not just going forward into the future, but also looking back Our into past. the past. Right, right. Sorry, it's it, the ship has sailed, um, and I think it's. I just. I don't know. I don't know how. Obviously, we need to hold ourselves accountable, and I, I say this over and over, but it's not necessarily productive to just, you know, spend a bunch of time thinking about how bad you are for having laughed at a movie that, it, in, in the context of today, doesn't hold up. Because um, that uh, nothing stuff from three years ago already doesn't hold up, you know what I mean? So, um, I, you know, it was interesting. Like I, I, I wrote this chapter about Adam Sandler, and like I like Adam Sandler, kind of um, less so after having done the but, research for this you, chapter. But you loved, but you loved the movies. Like, let's set this up. Like, part of why you wanted to go back and and look at these Adam Sandler movies is yeah. because you would love Saturday Night Live as a viewer and as a young woman and that that view which is and I was also somebody I'm older than you so it was like a slightly Adam Sandler was a little late for my mm -hmm. Saturday Night Live it was more like John Lovitz for me yeah um, <laughs> but it, it informed a certain view of who was a person who is funny and it was a very masculine very white view of that and there's a very funny line where you say is it my love for this you know was it my youthful the, the way it was imprinted on me is this why I once cried over a man with a handlebar mustache who slept on a bare mattress in an unfinished basement and that that's a it's a very funny line but I was like oh right is this this looking back at what formed us as children in terms of pop culture and and what we read and see yes it forms our ideas of what relationships are supposed to be so there's a real serious <laughs> curiosity in right. like and it's not, that's not Adam Sandler's fault that he, he was, look, someone gave this kid a bunch of money to make a bunch of comedies that were very funny in the, in the zeitgeist of their time. Um, and many people still find very funny. And, and I, you know, certainly watched all of those movies when they came out and, and, and quoted them, you know, with all my friends, like everyone else, whatever. Um, but so you know it's it's a really it's a complicated conversation because I'm not being like Adam Sandler uh, you know people love to be like Lindy West claims Adam Sandler caused Trump or whatever like, <laughs> um, but like uh, I, I do think and this is again a systemic situation where like you know these are the movies that got made um, this is who gets to be the hero of the movie. This is these are the roles that the women in the movie got to have, you know. And um, not every movie has to cater to me as a twelve-year-old girl. Um, but did any? I was going to say, but it'd be nice if there were <laughs> like, any of them did. Kind of the point of the chapter is that I realized um, that man, boys got to have white little white boys got to have. All so many movies about how you know Adam Sandler always plays like a very like everyman kind of like dopey guy who barely tries, <laughs> has anger problems, um, always the best at a sport for no reason, <laughs> and then gets like the hottest woman at the end, 
and didn't have to do any kind of personal growth. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and it, it, it's if you, and I so I watched like twelve in a row, and they really every single one is this same journey, and I just wonder how that manifested in the the men the boys and men that I grew up with where you know if you you got to you got to see on the screen um over and over as a kid the idea that like the world is yours uh, no matter what you do <laughs> right a fable of mediocrity made good yeah it mean, turns out to actually mirror reality so it's not <laughs> right? much of a fable and I, I and so I'm not even saying that like Make, like, making those movies was bad. or It's just um, in a landscape where, you know, especially at the time, like, in the 80s and 90s, we didn't have this, like, vast uh, media landscape. It's like the big comedy came out and everyone went and saw the big comedy. And, like, eight big comedies in a row are this fable of, of bare minimum <laughs> manhood. Um you know, and the, and like literally, the the women are nothing in these movies, and except insofar as they exist, they're white too. Right? Oh, so absolutely. Insofar as like there's nothing that caters to you, or there's no fable about you or me. But if there were going to be a fable about a girl, it would probably be about you or me. Oh, in insofar as then when you get the sort of diversification, it tends to be a white. A white girl. I mean, do black people exist at all in, those in Adam Sandler movies? Did they exist on Saturday Night Live? Except, you know, I mean, absolutely bar barely. And, you know? and and I was thinking about how one of the people, I, you know, we were talking just a few minutes ago. I was thinking about how interesting it is that one of the people who has gone back and done exactly this kind of self-examination is Eddie Murphy, mm. who was on Saturday Night Live, who recently has talked about how a lot of the humor that he that he did in his the early parts of his career, he's gone back and thought differently about the jokes. It's like mm -hmm. he did his own version of watching the Adam Sandler movies, except he was watching his own movie. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's really interesting. I don't even have anything smart to say about it. Um, uh, you know, I, 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 I really liked writing that chapter. Mm -hmm. And I, I, part of what I liked about it is that it didn't go the way that I expected. Um, you know, I went into it cause I, basically I was sitting around and I watched half of Billy Madison on TV and I was like, this is what this is. I remember this being way funnier. Mm -hmm. This is like, I don't even understand this. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't even like, this doesn't register to me as having any jokes in it at all. Like, what is this? He, why does he talk like a baby? <laughs> why is that woman, why is that adult woman having sex with him? Um, <laughs> And, and so I was like, God, uh, you know, I, and I and I got this idea to do this reexamination, and I was like, this is just going to be fun, you know. Like I said earlier, it's really fun to trash stuff, and it's really easy to be funny when you're trashing stuff. And so I sat down and I watched all these movies, and I did, you know, I I I like roast them to some degree in the book, um, but then I went um, coincidentally when we were writing season two of Shrill. Um, A.D. Bryant, who's on Saturday Night Live and is one of the co-creators of the show with me, um, invited me to SNL, coincidentally, the week that Adam Sandler was hosting, which was also while I was writing the book. This was all very wild, and I felt like maybe magic is real. Uh. Um, and it was really emotional to be there, because it, it was there was a lot of baggage. It was like this person coming 
you could you could feel it. It was like he was coming home to this place that had that had you know been you know where he worked when he was young and where the beginnings of his career like exploded and 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 I don't know there was just, there was you could feel like you could see the cast in the wings like tearing up and he sang a song about Chris Farley and it was just like ugh. um and I and I felt it too you know I was like I have that nostalgia too and um as much as I can sit here and make fun of these movies um, justifiably. Um, I also, you know, I loved them too when I was that age. And I, I just, it sort of ended up in this place of like forgiving ourselves for not having always been perfect. And also that I don't think that like, you know, white men shouldn't be allowed to make art. And some of the art, probably not the case for Adam Sandler, but some of the art, like, there, there's a process of, of weighing its value. This is something I think about all the time as I'm, you know, you write somewhere that we can't de-Polanski cinema, right? Yeah. We can't, like, Roman Polanski made some really good movies. I mean, how do you take Michael Jackson out of music? How do you don't? I, I, it's so I mean, and this is, but you don't listen to it uncritically either. Exactly. Right? And that's the trick. That's right. the trick. And it involves, but what it... The thing I think it robs you of is comfort, right? Right. You don't get to return to the ease, right? Of I love this, yeah. Right. And the the answer is not to like put Adam Sandler in comedy prison and he's right. never allowed to make anything ever again, or to even like the answer is not even to like be be mean to him. Um, although I, I hope I wasn't too mean because he was. I, then I like met him backstage <laughs> afterwards. He was so literally so nice, and I was uh. like. <laughs> Sorry, sir. Um, you don't know it yet, and you probably never will. Right. Uh, there's no reason why he would ever read this. But um, anyway, uh, but uh, the answer is not to like punish right. Sandler or you know, and he's just representative. Like I literally chose him because comedy was a big part of my life. There could have been a thousand versions of that chapter, a million versions sure. of that chapter. Um, it's not necessarily fair to pick on him, but um, I mean, he was like monumentally influential, though certainly among my generation. Um, but the answer is not to berate him um, or cancel him or whatever you want to call it. It's to continue to build a future where those opportunities are given to a, a wide, diverse array of people, you know, and and not, you know, where where women and people of color um, and trans people and, you know, um, any any of the vast array of people whose stories are not normally told get to be the the hero in a film and get to tell their story and get to write the kind of jokes that that um, speak to their lives and get to get to be part of defining the culture and um, not just not just as actors and as writers but you know every on every level up the chain to the top of the system you know I mean so then that's a big ask <laughs> you know obviously right. like if if I could. Like that's the whole point of everything. Change it all. <laughs> Not and it doesn't just apply to show right. business, it applies everywhere. But I'm just saying like the just the answer is is to keep to keep moving forward and keep fighting for progress and to do that, you don't get to be comfortable. You have to be constantly thinking and be self critical and um and unfortunately and this is a thing that, that white people, including white women, don't like, give up some real estate you know give up some ground give up some money and give up some opportunities and 
um, and be active in that process and not passive, you know? Yeah. Not be like, well, I don't own a movie studio. Like, well, you have influence in your own sphere, right. absolutely, all over the place. There are, you can, you can act all the time. You can li you know, live your values as corny, but like you can right. um, in a million little ways. Right. So, um, It's interesting, there's a, like a totally different subject in the book. There's an essay that sort of compares the way that we treat Ted Bundy, the mass murderer of women. Um, to how we treat Elizabeth Warren, yeah, a presidential candidate, Very <laughs> senator, that. senator from Massachusetts, truly off-putting, <laughs> Ted Bundy, charisma machine. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about that and and just how we are able to see humanity and feel warmly toward it in some people, but not in others? <laughs> Okay, so there's like this big Ted Bundy documentary that came out on Netflix last year, maybe. And everyone watched it. Everyone loves true crime right now. Um, and and then people are like, this, I mean, this has been the Ted Bundy narrative the whole time. Like, I'm from Seattle. Ted Bundy is a, you know, hometown hometown guy. He, he killed a woman on your mother's block. Yes. Right. He, yeah. he, was, he was killing women in, women my mother's age in my mother's neighborhood. Um, at the time, and, um, you know, so I, I grew up around the old Ted Bundy narrative, which is like, well, he was so handsome, and he was so charming, and, like, women couldn't resist him, um, and, uh, I, I get, it always kind of smelled off to me when I was younger, but I didn't really have the... I didn't have the sort of experience and the, I wasn't able to, to really um, articulate why. But now, of course, I'm, <laughs> I'm ready. So you, um, you got it. You figured out what's wrong. Put me in touch. <laughs> it's it's um, the part about how he killed 30 women. <laughs> well, and also, and like, but, you know, part of the, the narrative was like, yeah, Ted Bundy was so hot. <laughs> when, it was so hot. And, and you know would, what happens to guys like that. You know, and he would approach women and he would be like, hey, I have a broken arm. Can you help me put this thing in my car? And then he would kill them. And it's like, yeah. Um, and what's left out is like, yeah, we teach women to take care of broken men and to exploit that, that caretaking instinct, not instinct, uh, indoctrination. Mm -hmm. And like, um, directive from the world, like this is your job to take care of men, especially and to 50 pursue years the ago. the ones who were also told are the conventionally attracted, the hot ones. Yeah, right, I mean, totally, right. exactly, and to 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 strive for their approval. Um, he's like, the, he's exploiting that deliberately to rape and kill women, right. and then we're like, just some people got it, you know, <laughs> right. like whoa, right. some people just have that natural charisma, like. No, he's a coward. He's like a disgusting coward and a predator who's who's exploiting a systemic, sorry to say systemic a billion times, but like um, a really, really toxic system that um, that that tr literally trains women not to take care of themselves or like right. you know not to uh, not to prioritize their own 
to put comfort and safety and, and care. You and know? to put themselves in the hands of the people they're taught to empathize with and, and see as human and right. attractive and desirable. And that's racialized too, right. you know? I mean, like, you know, you're supposed to, like, defer to handsome white guys. Right. Although handsome is debatable. Right. <laughs> I feel like, right. why are we all just running with handsome? Right. <laughs> I feel like that's subjective. And then, but then in the after, right, after this, and then even, not before you know he's going to kill somebody, but after <laughs> you know that he's killed multiple people. So many. There's still the impulse to treat him as fascinating. Fascinating. Um, deep, I mean, I, and you see this all the time. There are other, I mean, this is, I've, I've always been obsessed with the fact that Dylan Roof, who killed nine people in Charleston, nine African-Americans saying, you rape our women, um, that he was then offered a hamburger by police after he was arrested. And I, and I want to be clear, actually, everyone who's arrested should be offered food and, right? Like, that's actually, it's not that it's incorrect. Right. It's that he was treated as human. Yeah. Whereas... Uh, uh, black young men who are, in many cases, have not only not killed anybody but are unarmed are routinely killed by yeah. police. And have committed no crime and at all. And have committed no crime whatsoever except being black in the world. Right. Um, and so it's the ability to humanize. I'm not saying that giving Dylan Roof a hamburger is wrong. Or, by the way, I guess I'm not even saying, and I don't know if you would agree with this, that seeing Ted Bundy as a human being is sure. wrong. No, sure. It's right. It's just the way that we should see lots of right. other people. And, but also, like, the fixation on, like, the the genius of the white male serial killer. How about, why don't we fixate on the, like, depravity and, like, repulsiveness of the white male and the cowardice of the white male serial killer? You know, like, it feels like just another way for white, that white men have set us up to worship them, even when they do the worst possible thing. Um, it, it's just, it's just worth examination. Um, and I, and I think and this is what, where I end up in the chapter to contrast that with the way that it is absolutely impossible for any woman to even be likable. Whereas like you can, you can murder a bunch of people and you're, you're a charisma king. Um, and you are the judge who is sentencing you to death. Is like, ah, oh, you would have made a great lawyer, son. Wish I could have worked with you. Wish I could have had you in my office. Right. And then, meanwhile, whatever the like, thirty-five percent of people say, just said that they find all the female candidates unlikable. Right. Well, that any woman who would run for president is unlikable because you don't understand because you we haven't fully humanized women. Yeah. There's no comprehension of why anybody would have that kind of ambition. Right. Uh, uh, meanwhile, like. As far as anything can be objective, Donald Trump is the most objectively unlikable human being that has perhaps ever lived. Um, and there's no, there's no hand-wringing about that. You know, there's no, like, it's certainly, I mean, Republicans certainly were not like, <laughs> I don't know if we should run this guy. He's un unlikable. I mean, I know there was, like, there were never Trumpers and all that, but it wasn't about, like, is he likable? Is he nice enough? No. You know, it, it was like he's clearly a buffoon um, who's going to kill us all, I guess. But anyway, I'm getting off track. Um, you know, I, I just, I think it's really instructive. Um, you know, maybe it feels like a wild contrast, but I, I think it's instructive to look at 
the ways that um, just the benefit of the doubt that men are afforded and the amount of, um, you know, generosity mm -hmm. that we extend to not just a mediocre Adam Sandler everyman, but like an actual serial murderer. Um, and, and the, I don't know, it's hard because like I too am in this, I'm in the, the true crime trap where I am constantly listening to murder podcasts. I get it. Um, but there is something where I'm like, what if we never talked about these people again? <laughs> you know? like, um, and then to be like, Elizabeth Warren uh, might be unelectable because she, cause we, people don't like her. Why don't people don't like her because you don't like it when your mean mommy makes you brush your teeth before bed. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, because there is, because, because you're right, because we haven't fully humanized women and people on some level hate women. <laughs> it's, I also wonder about whether the moments where we do humanize them are in the moments where they've been. So again, thinking about the treatment of Ted Bundy as, as human in a way that, you know, a mass murderer who was not a good-looking white man wouldn't have gotten treated. It was hard for me not to think about Amber Geiger, the the and the white woman who shot Botham Jean and was convicted and at her sentencing was given a hug and a Bible by the judge. Yeah. And it was very interesting because we do very rarely see the humanization of white women. We rarely see sympathy extended. I mean, we do that that's that's too broad a statement. But but there are lots of instances um, in which white women also are not seen as fully human. But in this moment where the actual crime that she's literally being sentenced for is killing a black man, she becomes human in a way that somehow becomes comprehensible. Yeah. And so I keep thinking about that and power and what a figure like a woman who's running for president who, by definition, because we've never had a woman president before, is threatening to displace a man, like take up space where that has historically only belonged to men. Yeah, she is. It's impossible to understand the humanity. In. Right, and and literally, I think to some extent, the more competent she is, the more threatening that is. Um, you know, Republicans are so proud of themselves for like loving Sarah Palin. <laughs> you know. Right. Like Sarah Palin should not be anywhere near any political office. Clearly, she herself knows that because she quit. She's gone. Um, but you know, um, yeah, I I think. Um, but I also think, and this is the argument that I make in the book, that even framing it as likability is not is disingenuous. You know. Because there's no, just, it's just the same as, as conventional beauty standards. There's no finish line for likability. It's just something to chase. And the criteria for likability, um, you know, the criteria are like, be nice, be quiet, be compliant, be a caregiver, be the kind of person that helps Ted Bunny to his car, <laughs> not to totally um, strain this metaphor, but, you know, um, all coincidentally things that take you out of the public sphere and the political sphere and the, you know, the sphere of getting anything done or advocating for anything you really need. Um, and that just feels like a con to me, you know? So I don't know what the answer is. Um, but I, I guess the answer, like everything else is like, 
Um, I wish that people would, would do a little bit of self-criticism before they say things like, I find Elizabeth, I just, I don't know, I just find her unlikable. I just don't like her voice. I just don't like her voice. I just don't like her voice. <laughs> what are you talking? Who cares? <laughs> right. Like literally, who cares? Literally, who cares? Literally, like, uh, um, are we are we electing presidents based on who has the best voice? <laughs> and there's I mean, there's an impossibility too. I mean, a few weeks ago she made that she made she had a line in the LGBTQ forum about. Um, uh, she said something about if you believe in a marriage between it's between one man and one woman she said to a, a man then you should just marry one woman if you can find her and there was a lot of criticism about she'd made this joke she made it lots of people found it funny well it wasn't funny because it was offensive and it was and then you know several weeks later her opponents started talking about her as angry and unyielding so like you can't be funny right you can't be angry you can't you know well, there's there's not a breadth of human experience that yeah which which goes to the the last thing I want to talk to you about is your um, the essay in the book about abortion and um, sort of forcing an expansion of conversation around abortion you mm -hmm. put an abortion in shrill the television show um, you write about uh, your friend who had an abortion and and something that she said about it which has really struck me that you say always makes you cry which is that she wrote when she told her family and friends that she'd had an abortion, I have a good heart and having an abortion made me happy. Um, and I think that's an example of sort of forcing an expansion of, of a conversation around what human experience is. Yeah, and I think it's really important also because, um, and this, this speaks to the, our previous, what we were just talking about, which is that um, the partisan divide and the way that we talk about these things or don't talk about them um, is not um, let's see how do I phrase this anti-abortion like anti-choice people are not arguing in good faith and like oh you know people who are saying Elizabeth Warren can't make a joke and she's too she's too angry and unyielding um, that is not a that is not a group of people arguing in good faith. If you are arguing two opposing ideas at the same time, depending on what's convenient that day, that's not a good faith position, and that's not something that you can engage with. And the fact that we know that um, that Republican women have abortions, anti-choice, you know, we know because people at clinics tell us someone will be outside the clinic protesting one day, and a week later they're in the clinic having an abortion secretly. We know that that's true. We know that anti-choice people have abortions. And to let such bad faith um, rhetoric not just dominate the conversation, but uh, be the totality of the conversation because um, the rest of us are living um, under this stigma that we're not supposed to talk about abortion I don't know where that came from, but I feel like someone tricked us into it. Right. <laughs> you know? um, because why? You know, I, I mean, it, it's it just it creates this absolutely skewed, uh, bizarre alternate reality where where we can't. How are we supposed to protect abortion rights and abortion access if we can't say the word abortion out loud? And the only people saying the word abortion out loud are bad faith propagandists 
screaming that abortion is murder while secretly shuttling their mistress off to to have an abortion, um, you know, in a <laughs> in a cushy clinic. You know what right. I mean? Like I, so it's been it's become really really important to me to say the word abortion as many times a day as possible in front of as many cameras as possible. Um, because I don't think that we have any kind of understanding, even on the left, um, even pro-choice people, ostensibly pro-choice people, have no idea how to talk about abortion. And many have absolutely no understanding of how abortion really, truly functions in people's lives, which is that it's not, um, it's not this constant, um, you know, it's not this melodrama in everyone's life or this this moment of agony where people are making these like incredibly painful, complicated decisions or, you know, obviously every decision is complicated because life is complicated, but overwhelmingly people express relief and gratitude when they are able to access abortion when they need one. Make decisions about whether or not, whether, when, and if they will have children and alter the shape of their familial, personal, professional, and economic lives. It is a big deal, <laughs> big deal is an understatement, to be forced to be a parent. Right. And the conversation around abortion, and I wish that pro-choice left-wing people would understand this, the conversation about abortion is a conversation about who is free and who is not. And that's it. And um, to let that conversation be snatched from us and let the terms be defined by completely disingenuous, truly monstrous liars <laughs> um, is, is, is a, an unforced error that we're just choosing to let happen. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not like a policy expert. I'm not, I don't, I'm just a person with opinions who has had an abortion um, and who is, of course, privileged enough to live in a place where it's safe for me to talk about my abortion. Mm -hmm. um, my family is pro-choice. I live in Seattle. Um, abortion access is not restricted. Um, I'm not in, in, in really any jeopardy. Um, of course, it's to some, to some degree, it's always dangerous to talk about abortion because anti-choice people, pro-life people kill people. Um, but, uh, you know, for the most part, I am privileged and lucky enough to be able to talk about my abortion. And so I choose to, um, exercise that privilege and do it as much as I, as I can, because it's, um, you know, th this landscape is new, you know, uh, Roe v. Wade was a long time ago. We decided <laughs> Right. You know, and this has been a long game that the right has been working on for a long time and it's coming to fruition and it's really scary. And Trump's judicial appointees are going to screw us over for a long time, whether he's impeached tomorrow and and resigns or whatever happens. And it's something it's just a ball that we all need to keep our eye on. And um, uh, yeah, I just encourage everyone to. <laughs> get a t-shirt that says uh, abortion on it and wear it every day. <laughs> well, I think that that is, we were going toward a very dark place, but I think that's actually, that's a, that's a lighter place to end. Um, 
And this has been really fun. Yeah, it has been really fun. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you so much for doing it. Thanks for writing the book. Thank you. Thank you for your work. You're my hero.